This morning we are celebrating the fourth week of Advent, and this particular week we're looking at the theme of love. And I want to speak to you this morning from the subject, Jesus Christ, God's Love Revealed. Jesus Christ, God's Love Revealed. And I want to look at the Gospel according to John, and I'll be reading there from chapter 3, uh, beginning at one of the most uh, popular verses, the most well-known verse, maybe, in the entire Bible. Please hear God's word. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Our passage begins with these very popular words, For God so loved the world. These verses contain the whole message of the incarnation of God's Son, the whole message of Christmas, God's love in Christ revealed. Do you believe this? It is much more, as we will see again, than a simple verbal confession of faith. These verses radically transform everything about who you are, how you live, why you live, for whom you live, and for what do you live. This passage actually begins, as you know, with Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the highest court in Judaism. We see that in verse 1. And he's coming to Jesus to ask some questions. He wants to inspect Jesus and to vet Jesus, his point of views, his teachings. And the Bible says that he came by night. And it says this in verse 2, and typically in John's account of the gospel, it's not a good sign when it mentions night or mentions darkness. It shows that Nicodemus has some personal problems. He had spiritual deficiencies that were preventing him from knowing God, 
experiencing the kingdom of God and possessing eternal life. And yet, he was a teacher of God's law. Maybe you also have some of these deficiencies. Although he recognized that Jesus was a divinely sent miracle-working teacher, which of course is true, uh, Nicodemus had not yet recognized Jesus' unique being, his unique nature, his unique claims, his unique purpose. That's the word that's actually used of Jesus. He's, a, he's the unique Son of God. There's no one else like him. Nicodemus's compliment that Jesus is a teacher sent from God um, because nobody can do these works that you do unless God is with him. This compliment sort of falls on deaf ears and it is eclipsed by Jesus's urgent declarative warning to Nicodemus as well as to us. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He reads Nicodemus like a book. He reads his heart. Jesus reads your heart as well. Seeing the kingdom of God is the same as, in verse 5, it says, entering the kingdom of God. And similar to as it is said in verses 15 and 16, possessing eternal life. Uh, Jesus aimed straight at your heart. He aimed straight at Nicodemus's heart, and he knew Nicodemus, and he knows you better than you know yourself. Better than Nicodemus knew himself, Jesus Christ knew him. Soon to be Saint Nick, I couldn't help, I couldn't resist that. Um, Nicodemus was soon going to be Saint Nick. Uh, he was thinking in the natural. Jesus says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus uh, says to Jesus, how can a man be born when he is so old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He was thinking with a natural mind, not with a spiritual mind, when he imagined uh, being born again. Sometimes we do the same. Do you ever think that knowing God, experiencing his kingdom, and possessing eternal life is dependent on your efforts, your abilities, your being at the right place at the right time, your ability to think positively, or by some kind of law of attraction you can turn on at will and control? Jesus makes the point more forceful when he says, in verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. In these statements, Jesus is driving home the absolute essential necessity of the Holy Spirit's work of creating you over. Consider uh, the sin in your heart, the rebellion that you're often guilty of, and 
the sin and rebellion in everybody's heart in this world, and it becomes painfully self-evident that we all need a brand new Genesis, a brand new beginning. We need to be radically made over. We need to be recreated. Jesus said, do not marvel. Essentially, he's saying, do not marvel at the need for a marvelous work of the Holy Spirit to happen in order for you to be right with God and live right before God. The Spirit's work is mysterious, and His work is sovereign. He points this out in verse, verse 8, The wind blows where it wishes, and we hear the sound. We don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of uh, the Spirit. You cannot really contain, predict, or control the wind. Now, we have meteorologists today, and they predict the weather, sometimes right, sometimes wrong. Uh, but remember the context. They didn't have meteorologists like we do back then. Also, uh, if you're feel, feeling confident about your ability and our ability in 21st century to uh, control the wind and, and predict the weather, um, remember the hurricanes that come our way once in a while and the tornadoes and the tsunamis and the typhoons and the dust storms that can arise out of nowhere. And uh, in the middle of a dust storm, you realize that you really don't know what you're talking about when you try to predict the weather. Um, you can tell what it's happening, what's happening at the moment because you're in the midst of it, but you don't know where it came from and you don't know where it's going. And so Jesus says the Spirit, in like manner, cannot be contained, controlled, or conjured up. He sovereignly and mysteriously moves as he wishes. He's God. And uh, Nicodemus uh, then asks uh, the question that shows that he's on the way to becoming truly Saint Nick. How can these things be, the ESV says, but a better translation is how can these things happen? Um, to answer this question, Jesus tells Nicodemus and us the true purpose of his coming, the true purpose of Christmas, and its foundation in God, the Father's love, and what it takes to truly know God, to experience his kingdom, and to possess eternal life that he graciously and generously offers. How can these things happen? How can it be, Nicodemus is asking, that I can truly know God? How can it happen so that I can truly experience the kingdom of God? How can it happen that uh, how can it happen that I uh, can possess eternal life? How can these things happen? How can a new birth happen? First, Jesus implies that the way uh, this new birth can happen is found in the Old Testament. He gently rebukes Nicodemus. Are, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? It's clear from the Old Testament that God must do an internal work that he alone can do in order for you, in order for anyone to be made new. 
you, you see this, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, where God promises his people to circumcise their heart. That's something he's going to do. And, and, and the heart of their offspring, so that they will love the Lord, their God, with all their heart and with all their soul, and that they would live. God's got to do that with you as well. He's got to circumcise your heart. He's got to circumcise the heart of your offspring in order for you to love him and to love him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. In Jeremiah 31, you know the passage where God promises his people that he's going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And he promises that the covenant he's going to make is that he's going to put his laws within his people. He's going to write his laws on their hearts and he's going to be their God, and they are going to be his people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and say, Know the Lord, he says, because they'll all know me from the least to the greatest. Because I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. God is saying there's coming a day that he's going to remove the barrier. And that day has come with Jesus. That day has come with Christmas. That day has come at the cross, where God removed the barrier of sin and iniquity so that we might really know him, that we might have eternal life, which is to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent, to know the gospel, to know the love of God. You may also recall Ezekiel chapter 11 and chapter 36, where God makes his promise of sprinkling clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, God promises, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So Jesus is telling Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you should know this stuff. This is Old Testament. And who can forget the passage in Ezekiel 37 where there's a valley of dry bones and everything's dead. There's no life there. And, and, and God asked the prophet, can these bones live? And even the prophet is wondering and says, well, you know, Lord. And he says, well, prophesy to the bones. And he does. And they, they join together. And they begin to, to, to get sinews and flesh and muscle and and then he says well can these bones live and and he says well you know lord and he says well prophesy to the wind and wind and spirit are the same word in hebrew and in greek the same word that's used in hebrew for wind is used for spirit and and the same for it same is true of of in the, in the greek language and he prophesies to the wind and you know the story and it fills this great army, and they stand on their feet, and it's the whole house of Israel, and it becomes the army of, of the Lord of hosts. And um, so there, there's, a, there's a need, there's a necessity to be born again. There's a necessity for a spiritual work from God. 
God must initiate it for it to take place. How can these things be like the new birth? How can these things happen uh, like the new birth, like knowing God, like experiencing His kingdom, possessing eternal life? How can these things happen? Second, you must recognize the authority of Christ and receive His words. You see this in verses 11 through 13. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Uh, Nicodemus claimed in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. God is with you. Nicodemus, however, did not know enough to truly know God, experience his kingdom, and possess eternal life. Now Jesus tells Nicodemus and us, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. Jesus knows that he knows that he knows. You know how we used to say um, he knows what he's talking about. Nicodemus made some observations but had no idea how ignorant he truly was of spiritual realities. Many today claim to be spiritual and have no idea what they're talking about. The only way that we can truly be spiritual is by being born again, by being born from above, by being born by the Spirit of God. Nicodemus and the Sanhedrin, the ruling party, the highest court in, in, in Judaism, they had an inability to understand Jesus, the kingdom that God came to bring and eternal life. And it was rooted, their, their failure to understand was rooted in a failure to receive Jesus' testimony. How are you at receiving Jesus' testimony, his words? In another place, Jesus says to the Pharisees, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. So you must recognize and receive Jesus' authority and the authority of his words. If you cannot recognize and receive Jesus' earthly message about your need to repent of your desires, of your autonomy, of your desire to have no other measurement than yourself, your desire to rule your own life, and therefore your absolute, uh, uh, to recognize your absolute need to be recreated. If you can't recognize and receive that message from Jesus, that you have a problem with autonomy, and you need to repent of that, and you need recreation, you need a rebirth, if that message is lost on you, how can you ever begin to hear his message about being ruled by him for his purposes and his glory. 
If you cannot bear to hear and hear and accept Jesus' message about your default setting to be self-centered and a lover of pleasure, how can you begin to hear and accept Jesus' message about him reorienting your life to daily serve him and to serve his purposes in extending his kingdom in this world through a life lived under his lordship? How can these things, like the new birth, be? How can they happen? How can knowing God truly happen? How can experiencing the kingdom of God and possessing eternal life happen? Third, Christ, God himself, must come. Indeed, in, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The apostle said, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. These truths are highlighted in verse, verse 13. I'll read it again. Jesus says in John 3, 13, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus says in these verses, uh, he's claiming that no one can truly know the mind of God, the plans, the purposes of God, except one who has lived in heaven in perfect, uninterrupted communion with God throughout eternity. That one of necessity would be God. In, in, in John's account of the gospel, in chapter 1, verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side or in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. He's exegeted him. The sense is he and he alone can truly give us the necessary understanding to really know God, experience his kingdom, and possess the eternal life he gives. Jesus said in Matthew 11, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You and I need Jesus. Uh, we needed Jesus who, who fully ascended and knew the Father's heart, knew the mind of God. We needed that one. We needed the Son of God who's face to face with the Father, in communion with the Father, who has ascended to the heights. That's the one we need to descend to us in order for us to know God as our Father, experience His kingdom in our lives and extend it through us, not only to experience His kingdom personally, but to experience His kingdom being extended through our witness and through our lives and possess eternal life. Um, in order for us to truly have eternal life, we needed the one, the only, Jesus, who had ascended, who had been to the highest place in, in heaven, face to face with the Father. We needed that one to descend 
in order for us to know the true gospel of God. We, like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, need Jesus to open our eyes to see his centrality in God's revelation. Open up the scriptures to see that they point to Jesus and open up our minds to understand what the Bible says about his redeeming work and his kingdom and how we can have access to that through him. We needed that descent at Christmas from the one who ascended the heights of heaven. How can these things like the new birth happen? How can knowing God and experiencing his kingdom and possessing eternal life happen? Fourth, Christ must be lifted up. Look at what it says in verse 14 of John 3. And, and, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus must be lifted up. Jesus must die. He had to die as our substitutionary sacrifice in order for our sins to cease being the barrier between us and God, keeping us from knowing him, keeping us from experiencing his kingdom, keeping us from possessing eternal life. Even for all of us who have been bitten by the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, we can have this eternal life. We can experience God's kingdom. We can truly know God as our Father and ourselves as His children through the death of the Son of Man. Jesus had to die. He came to die. He had to take the guilt of your sin. He had to take the penalty for your sin. He had to be forsaken on the cross. He had to bear your shame. He had to expose how sinful sin is and how damning it is. Jesus had to be wounded. He had to be chastised. He had to be pierced through violently till dead. He had to be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, esteemed not, smitten by God, afflicted and crushed, like a silent lamb led to the slaughter, cut off and stricken. He who knew no sin had to become sin if you and I were ever to become the righteousness of God in him, a child of God, an inheritor of the kingdom, a possessor of eternal life. All of these things are rooted in the character of God. Verse 16 says it all, For God so loved the world, God is love. He so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God, with all his power, with all his wisdom, with all his wealth, 
with all his knowledge, with all his love and all his sovereignty, could not have done better than he did when he sent his only son, Jesus Christ. It is the best he could do for his glory and the best he could do for our good. It's the way that the person, the being of God, is put on display in full HD quality. At the cross, you see the heart of God exposed. What is God really like? You want to know? Look at Calvary. Look at Jesus dying on the cross for sinners. It's a huge picture of what God is, is like. We talk about the inabilities of God as part of his glory. He cannot change. He cannot lie. He cannot fail. He cannot repent. He cannot deny himself. Or you can add this one to the list. He could not have done better for his glory and our good when we were in need than sending his only son Jesus to be lifted up, laid low, raised up, seated up above, reigning in this world. Jesus uh, is the best that God has to offer. When it comes to redemption, when it comes to dealing with our sin, when it comes to knowing him truly, it doesn't get any better than Jesus coming for us, to die for us. God's purpose in sending his son, uh, as it says in verse 17 of John 3, it wasn't to condemn the world, uh, but it was so that uh, the world, in order that the world might be saved through Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. That's the mission. It wasn't to condemn the world, but in order that the world uh, might be saved through Jesus. Uh, the Bible says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God sent his son Jesus to take the condemnation you deserve so that you might be saved. He didn't come to condemn he came to take the condemnation that you deserve so that you might be saved through him. If you truly believe this, you are not condemned. If you don't believe this gospel, you are condemned now, already. The Bible says in John 3, uh, verse, verse 18, the person who doesn't believe this gospel, who rejects this gospel, stands already condemned 
because there's only one way to know God as Father. There's only one way to experience His kingdom. There's only one way to possess eternal life. There's only one way to be saved. There's only one mediator between God and man. Therefore, to reject Him is to be condemned by definition. Repentance will change it. But a failure to repent, the wrath of God remains, as the end of this chapter says. Jesus' name is salvation from sin. To reject the only name given among men is to be cemented in your sin. Sin is the one thing that separates you from God. There is only one vaccine for sin, and it is effective against condemnation, a hundred percent of the time. And it's, it's effective with a hundred percent of the people who believe in Jesus and receive him. Jesus is the way you must accept him. His way, his call to believe him and follow him. Now Jesus gets into some nitty-gritty things even more as he ends this section in verses 19 through 21. There he says, and this is the judgment, the verdict, that light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Light has come into the world. Jesus is the light of the world. But when he shined in this world, even though the darkness couldn't overcome him, the darkness couldn't stop him, the darkness couldn't contain him, when he came into this world to shine, People preferred and loved darkness rather than the light he brought, rather than him. John says early on that he, he came to a world that was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his very own house, and his own people did not receive him. The reason they didn't, the reason people today don't want that light. It says because their deeds were evil. Their deeds are still evil. Evil deeds keep unbelievers from accepting Jesus, and evil deeds keep believers from knowing God as they should, experience His kingdom in their life as they should, experience His kingdom being extended through their lives as they should, and keeps believers from responding to eternal life as they should. Evil deeds can and will stunt and stifle your growth in Christ and prevent you from being used by Him as He created you to be used and desires to use you. God wants to use you to extend His kingdom in this world. He wants you to impact and influence the culture and the world in which you live for His glory and for His praise. 
This world is a dark place. It's a cloudy place. But God placed you here, planted you here as light and as salt. And God wants you to be like, like on a cloudy day, every once in a while, the sun peers through and its rays shine through and illumine the world. God wants you to be that way in this cloudy world, this spiritually cloudy world. God wants you to be like that ray of light that just shines through periodically, once in a while, increasingly, showing the way to Jesus. Sometimes our own lives, isn't it true, uh, can be cloudy. Uh, and, and, and God wants to work in your life so that the light of His Son begins to increasingly break away those clouds and your life begins to shine and your life becomes a ray of sunshine to the world around you. A light in a dark place. Like stars in the night sky. What happens when you get out of step with the Spirit? Evil deeds begin to stifle you, paralyze you. Let us not let wicked deeds snuff out our light and paralyze our walk that is meant to have a worldwide impact and result. We need to be rooted in and grounded in the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ as our foundation, as our motivation. Like Paul said, it's the love of Christ that compels me to no longer live for myself, but for the one who died and was raised again on our behalf. We are told uh, those who do wicked things in verse 20 of John 3, they hate the light because light exposes darkness. They hate the light. Uh, I'm going to give something away here. I grew up in the, in the city, and so we often... Uh, you know, came in contact with, with roaches. Yes, I said roaches. And um, when, when you come down in the middle of the night and you turn the light on, if there's a roach, they typically will run away because they're, they don't want to be around when the light comes on because uh, they could go down. That could be their last day if the light comes on if your foot is fast enough. Um, but that's the way light is. It exposes darkness. Vermin tend to run away when the light shines on them and exposes them. The wicked are like this, Jesus says. They hate the light. They don't come to the light. Because it, and the reason they don't come to the light and they hate the light is because the light exposes something shameful in their life. Uh, when is this true of you? Are there things in your life, places in your life that you simply will not bring to the light, to God's Word, to Jesus, to other believers, because you don't want to be inspected. You don't want to be corrected. You don't want your idols detected. 
What idols are you protecting by neglecting to bring them in the light, to bring them to Jesus? The light, so that he might show you what rejecting those idols will do for his glory, for your good, and for the good of others. What Jesus wants is found in verse 21 of chapter 3. Jesus wants uh, it to work in you like he worked for you so that you would be like, like this. You would be like those in verse 21. It says of them, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. They do what is true. These do the truth. They walk according to God's truth, God's word, the scriptures. They walk like the truth. God's Son, Jesus Christ. How do they live? They come to the light. That's what you need to do. That's what I need to do. We need to come to the light, the light of Scripture. We need to come to Jesus. We need to come in the presence of believers. And, and we need to come in for, for three things, for three things. They need to come first to discover how to live. That's what the Bible teaches us. That's what Jesus teaches us in the Bible. That's what Jesus' life revealed in Scripture teaches us to discover how to live. To, secondly, to die to ways that we're not to live. That's what happens when you come to the Scripture. That's what happens when you come to Jesus. That's what happens when you come to the Scripture and to Jesus in the presence of God's people. You, 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 you're taught to die to ways that you're not to live. And then we're taught to, third, depend on Christ to pardon our failure, to pardon our sin, our rebellion, our perversions, and to empower you to live in agreement with God's working in you. The Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The psalmist said it like this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Is that your prayer today? Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous, any sinful, any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Make that your prayer today. Will you walk in the light this Christmas? Will you be a light this Christmas? Don't let your Christmas tree or your Christmas lights outshine you. Those who love the light bear witness to the light with their lips and with their lives. Those who love the light, they come to the light they love like the light. God says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 
In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Suffering and love go hand in hand. They often fall in the same place. In this world, they fit together like a glove on your hand. We're called to lay down our lives and so often suffer so that, so that God's love might shape us and be seen through us, perfected through us. No one has seen God. But when you lay down your life like Christ in order to love so that His kingdom might come, His kingdom might be extended, when you do that, people see that sunlight shining through the clouds of your life, through the clouds of this world. They see the love of God being perfected in your life. Won't you do that this Christmas? And not only this Christmas, but from here on out, let us love one another. Let us walk in the light. Let us be that light and live like the light. God bless you, and God keep you this Christmas.